Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aidan Byrne. My guest is Nikhil Kamath, India's youngest billionaire, a former chess champion who dropped out of school. He heads up India's largest stock brokerage and also runs a company managing money for wealthy investors worldwide. Yeah, thank you. I think we we kind of like got uh, very lucky uh, being in the right place at the right time when we started in broking about 11, 12 years ago. To draw a comparison between America and India, out of the 1.4 billion people that we have in the country, uh, only about 2% of that population has either direct or indirect access to stock markets, to financial markets, right? We were a largely unbanked country 10 years ago, but the level of access to banking is constantly going up. And by virtue of that, people are exploring newer options like stock market or investing in equity as a serious place to store uh, saving. Uh, We've been a beneficiary of that. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. In a wee moment, we'll be talking to Nikhil Kamath of Saroda and True Beacon. We recorded this from our location in the New York metro area as Nikhil was in his office in Bangalore, India, in the midst of India's COVID-19 crisis. He'll tell us about his company's humanitarian relief efforts and lots more. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. So India is slightly different. America is truly capitalistic in nature. You guys have totally adopted the capital, uh, capitalistic way of you know functioning as an economy. India is, to a certain extent, pseudo-socialist. While wealth creation is appreciated, while uh, companies are incentivized to grow, wealth disparity is a big problem here. Sherlock, it's grand to have you back. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. My guest is Nikhil Kamath, India's youngest billionaire, according to Forbes. He's co-founder of financial services companies, Saroda and True Beacon. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I live in the south of India, in a city called uh, Bangalore, uh, much like the tech capital of this region, uh, of Southeast Asia largely. Things have been really bad for the last maybe 20, 30 days. Uh, but they're just about improving. In the last 48 hours or last 24 hours, as I speak, we're seeing a significant decline in the number of cases. Uh, we've been locked down for a while now, for over a fortnight, and I think the lockdown is taking uh, effect and the cases are dropping very quickly today. 
What's the background to this upsurge? Because it made a lot of headlines around the world when India seemed to be coming into a good place and you had it under control, it just came back. So do you think we got a little bit carried away here in the West and maybe there was some exaggeration, not to underestimate the terrible tragedy and the loss of life that can never be underestimated. The loss of loved ones is heartbreaking anywhere. Yeah, I would, I would be, uh, we did get complacent after the first wave. The second wave did not hit India for a long time. Uh, it, I think it hit the Western world very quickly. Uh, in the duration between the first wave and the second, uh, we did not prepare to the extent that we could have. And uh, things did get bad. But I think uh, Western media has uh, largely exaggerated the situ- situation on the ground. It's not as bad as it appears in foreign media. It is bad, though. I mean, it is bad on the ground, though. To put it in context, the reported numbers of deaths through COVID in the United States is in the region of 580,000 and our population of over 300 million. By contrast, the reported numbers out of India are substantially less, and you have a population of 1.4 1.4 billion. I saw number of 274,000 deaths in India. And some analysts say that could be an underestimate, but either way, it's a smaller number compared to the US. Yeah, the fatality rate here has definitely been smaller than America. Uh, I think the variant we had through a lo- through a vast majority of the pandemic. Uh, was was not as lethal as you saw as in the versions that you had in America. Things have gotten bad in the last 30 days. But like I said, the last 48 hours seemed to be the turning point for us. Uh, we were seeing a curve which was going up in one direction. Suddenly it has turned around for the first time. And we're seeing a significant drop in the number of cases. The fear probably was that India hadn't it under control and the surge wouldn't be brought under control. And so the worst fears were speculated upon and it played into that narrative. Yeah, that's right. But you haven't sat aside during all of this. You've been helping out in the relief efforts. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so everybody... um a lot of the corporations in India are, you know, trying to get involved. Uh, The scale of the country, India, is enormous. The number of people, uh, you know, who can't afford hospitalization, medical care, like they might be able to invest in more developed countries, that population is enormous. Uh, So the onus here, I think, does not fall upon the government alone, but also for the people of the country uh, the affluent, the corporations who have done well to come together and participate. And uh, we've been part of that effort and we've done a bunch of different campaigns, uh, some in partnership with others, some on our own. Uh, we have an ambulance service, which is uh, uh, ferrying people, patients uh, who are COVID positive for free. Uh, we have a mini step-down hospital. We have... Uh, try to import a whole bunch of oxygen concentrators, many campaigns, but all of us are helping out. That is us as a company, other companies are coming together, the affluent in India are coming out and donating money. Uh, So together, I think even the effort of the private sector will make a significant difference in alleviating the problem uh, faster. 
Where are you located in India exactly? Uh, down south in uh, in a city called Bangalore. Have you heard of Bangalore? Here in, in the United States, we are fascinated, I think, by India, and mm-hmm. which might explain the headlines too. But uh, yes, we're aware of it. But tell us more. So Bangalore down south is very much like the tech capital of India. Uh, not just India, but the region, I would say, of Southeast Asia. Uh, there are very many startups. There's a thriving ecosystem of innovation. I would not be wrong in saying we probably have 15 or 20 unicorns in the city, all situated in a small radius. Uh, it's a very interesting city to be in. Great, uh, well-skilled, well-equipped uh, labor. Uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of doctors. Bangalore is very much, you know, the the engine of growth when it comes to startups, technology, fintech, that ecosystem. I use it advisedly because uh, I don't think it really captures the essence of what we see globally. But Bangalore, for all intents and purposes, is a first world city. Would that be correct? It's all the modern amenities and technology and investments and educated workforce that we would see in the best of American cities? I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, if we are not comparable to the most advanced of American cities, uh, we are definitely, you know, like uh, up there competing and trying to earn our place. So the way the cities work in India, think of it as a smaller San Francisco, right? You have a very affluent population, a lot of companies doing very well, but you also have homelessness and you have uh, uh, people who have kind of been left behind. So Bangalore mimics SF to a large degree, but uh, a more muted version of San Francisco, I would say. Well, we're all aware and hear about the uh, economic uh, problems in India, and then that's set against the progress in your cities and other cities with technology and new businesses. It's pretty striking, right? You go into the rural areas. Again, I use this carefully toward world. It's not as developed. And then the cities are they're ahead in that sense, yeah, economically and financially. Yeah, so we're seeing a very interesting trend here in India. I don't know if we're mimicking uh, what's happening in in, in your neck of the woods. Uh, We followed China in the path of urbanization, where a lot of the rural tier two, tier three cities, they moved to the urban centers for employment. And the influx of people was so high that uh, the metropolitan, the large cities of India we're always chasing uh, and, and lagging the circle of, you know, infrastructure development. We were always trying to uh, cope with the influx of new people coming into the cities. With the pandemic, a lot of the companies locally have kind of realized that working from home is quite an efficient uh, means uh, of them walking into the future with a new new method of working in a way. So many companies here today are adopting work work from home. They are adopting uh, shorter work hours per week. What this is doing is taking a lot of the people who have done well in the cities back to tier two towns and tier three towns, which will in turn lead development in those centers. Uh, So while we have not urbanized at the scale that our Chinese counterparts have, I think we might skip that urbanization wave and uh, economic developments, uh, the centers of development would be more fragmented in a way, wherein versus having five or 10 really large cities, 
we might have 30 or 40 cities which are smaller in size but which mushroom up across different corners of the country which i think is beneficial both uh, from an economic standpoint as this kind of takes uh, growth and uh, innovation happening in cities to different pockets across the country but from also larger you know uh, lens of climate change and not having too dense a population confined in small cities uh, i think it it will go a long way in aiding how companies here work into the next decade into the future so there are some positive unintended consequences of covid different tier towns may actually emerge in better shape mm-hmm. with covid because of the lessons of working from home that's something we're seeing in america and in the west of course yeah. that depends on infrastructure being available in those areas um will it lift more of india's poor out of poverty if that trend for example continued i suspect it might uh we have not witnessed uh, aggregation in the farming sector like the more developed countries across the world have so the concept of individual farmers with small uh, farming land parcels is still prevalent in the country uh, and the the wage growth or the growth in income of this sect in society has been abysmally low when compared to you know asset growth or how much money people in cities are making but with tier 2 3 towns uh, fragmentation of economic activity across the country i think farming community will have uh, access to better education access to better medical facilities access to innovation and technology which could help shore up uh, uh, you know the the gdp per capita of people in that that fragment of uh, that fragment of society the farming sector Well when you take a big picture of India it's remarkable you have a a large and growing middle class and you also have a large billionaire class and I want to tell our listeners uh who are following that you are you are regarded as the youngest billionaire in India today so congratulations on that Yeah thank you I think we we kind of like got uh very lucky Uh, being in the right place at the right time when we started in broking about 11 12 years ago uh, so to draw a comparison between america and india out of the 1.4 billion people that we have in the country uh, only about 2% of that population has either direct or indirect access to stock markets to financial markets right we were a largely unbanked country 10 years ago but the level of access to banking is constantly going up and by virtue of that people are exploring newer options like stock market or investing in equity as a serious place to store uh, saving uh, we've been a beneficiary of that with uh, the scale that has come in the last 11 years 2% is the penetration as of today uh, in the west that number is 60 70% in america so uh, it it wouldn't be uh, too optimistic of of me to you know wager that the number which is 2% today will go up to 5% and 10% and 15% in the future and by virtue of that we find ourselves positioned very well to take advantage of the growing burgeoning population which is trying to access equity markets in india 
You look at the stock market in India, it's surging during COVID. And we've seen a similar phenomena in uh, Europe and in the US, surging stock markets. So what's your thoughts on that? Well, leaves me a bit bewildered, uh, not exactly sure. Uh, I see on one end, when I look onto the ground, what is happening locally, uh, there is a lot of pain. There is a lot of unemployment. Uh, many small and medium businesses are shutting down. Uh, the stock markets in India are representative of the largest corporations in India. Uh, these guys have a moat uh, with which they can work around and they can sustain for a prolonged period of time if they were to be a, a really long lockdown. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons. I think uh, it's fairly skewed. Even though the stock markets look like they're doing well, it does not mean that the companies in India are doing well, but the top 100 largest companies of India are doing well. The pain in the bottom 100,000 companies is immense. Uh, secondly, the liquidity. Uh, America has been printing a lot of money. Right? I mean, in the last year, you printed something like $5 trillion. Uh, a lot of that money is percolating uh, downwards and you know it's coming into India through either private equity where you guys invest in startups in the private segment uh, a lot of money is coming in through the FBI route onto our public equities as well so we are beneficiaries of the uh, if I might say excessive printing that has happened in America over the last year or two as well as is the rest of the world I think globally stock markets are doing great today uh, fundamentals across the world might not be as great as stock markets kind of uh, describe them to be as of now. Well, India has had its own rounds of stimulus spending. By late last year, at least 15% of your GDP, that's a lot of money to spend to prop up your economy. So, John, uh, that spending was uh, not very pragmatic. Uh, it was spending in terms of you know, uh, moratoriums on loans, in terms of subsidies, uh, even though the the number looks large, the actual transmission of that number on the ground has not been very large. So there hasn't been very much uh, stimulus spending in India as of today. When we think of stimulus spending in India, we can't think of it in the same terms as the US, I'm sure, where individuals got checks and there was payroll protection for small businesses and the infrastructure and network electronically is there to support it. Not sure how that would play out in India today. Well, the problem is much larger because we have five times the number of people, but uh, we're, not, we're not a very rich country. Uh, we are a country which is growing very quickly, but our GDP per capita is something like $2,500 a year. Uh, $2,500 per year, that's small by American standards. Yeah, yeah. Even by Chinese standards, I think the Chinese are at uh, four times or five times GDP per capita of India. So the amount of money available with the government to spend towards, you know, individual cash transfers and stimulus of that sort uh, is not ample for the need that exists in India. Uh, there is a lot of murmur uh, locally about, you know, universal basic income and having some kind of a structure which allows for the ones who have been left behind in the last cycle of growth to benefit from measures like that. But it would be a lot harder for us with the scale that we have to implement than uh, America would. 
Tell us about your own success story. You've done extremely well with your businesses, True Beacon, and you have an asset management company. How did this all begin? True Beacon is actually a newer company, which we started uh, uh, about two years ago. It's an asset management company focused on ultra HI individuals across the world. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, typically billionaires in America, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, even. Uh, we, we allow for them to invest into public equity in India, but we remove the inefficiencies and leakages that have existed up until now by virtue of all the middlemen that existed in the business. So people who typically uh, bought into India had to go through a hop, you know, be it Mauritius, Singapore, uh, Luxembourg, these banking capitals of sort through which they came into an India. And each time they went into one of these hops, they lost half a percent a year, a percent a year in additional management fees. Uh, The Indian government has set up a new financial center uh, where they have made it uh, very tax friendly for foreigners to come into the in- to the country, to the public markets of the country through that vehicle. And we are building that bridge. Uh, traditionally, with an asset management company, you have a distributor or a middleman you pay off. Uh, you have an asset manager who would charge you 2% a year if you make money, do not mm-hmm. make money. Uh, there are lock-ins. You can't take out your money for two or three years. We've kind of eliminated all of that and said no middlemen, uh, no annual management fees, no lock-ins, totally open-ended, daily NAV. The only thing we do charge is a 10% carry if the client ends up making money at the end of the financial year. That makes us very client-aligned and it's a new approach to asset management, uh, I think not just in India, but across the world. So it would be an interesting company to watch out for. Early days, just been about two years now. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Nikhil Kamath, India's youngest billionaire, according to Forbes. He's co-founder of financial services companies, Saroda and True Beacon. Here I asked him about his global investors. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. So you mentioned overseas investors in the US and elsewhere. I'm assuming they include Indian expats who've done very well in America. Yeah, they do. And they also include, you know, Americans, uh, citizens of America. Uh, You would be surprised. We have so many clients out of the valley. Uh, They all like the India story, but uh, they never went into the public markets in the manner they are doing now because of the leakages that they had to encounter traditionally. They like this clean, transparent platform through which they can buy blue chip companies in India and the public uh, stock market. And we see tremendous interest from the Valley and, you know, that region of America. 
So in terms of currency flows and sending your money from the U- a U.S. account to India, uh, is there any friction there or any controls, any legal paperwork or stuff they should be aware of? Nothing, nothing at all. Uh, there, is no, uh, there is no hassle there, even in terms of taxation. When the money is repatriated back to America, uh, it's very favorable to come in through this vehicle. It's called the Gift City in India. It's our Prime Minister's pet project, and it, it has just kind of opened up, but I think it will do very well. well. I'm sure some people are listening and saying safety, security, regulation, is money, money safe? Yeah, I mean, uh, see, you're, you're at the end of the day, you're investing into the largest companies of India, which are listed on the, on the public markets. And some companies of them listed here in the United States, too. True. Yeah. And these are companies with markets, market caps of 50, $100 billion. You're probably much safer of investing into these companies when you're investing in a foreign geography versus individually trying to go and seek out the best investment opportunity in an individual company or region in India. You mentioned earlier that looking at the stock market in India and looking at reality on the ground was, I suppose, a little jarring. Are you expecting the market to maybe top out or could it dip? Could we have a pullback at some point? And how severe could that get? So the long-term story of India still holds true. Uh, just by the scale of economics here, even you know, barring the external world, internally, just our internal consumer spending with the growing middle class can create a very robust market just domestically in India. In the short term, we might be expensive and there might be a correction. Uh, Very hard for anybody to foretell uh, how big a correction might be or when it will happen. But the long-term story of India, just take the example of the previous uh, uh, penetration subject we spoke about, wherein only 2% of India has access to the financial markets. So if you buy a company in the fintech sector, the room for the company to scale is exponentially larger than in many countries across the world. I'd like to talk about what it must feel like to be wealthy in India. If you're a wealthy person, for example, in the United States, depending on what city you're located, let's take New York City, metropolitan area, filled with many rich people walking up and down Fifth Avenue when the lockdowns are lifted, of course, Uh, you could be sitting in a restaurant and right beside you, you could be rubbing shoulders with a multimillionaire or billionaire um, and nothing is made of that. Is it what? What's it like in India? You're clearly a household name there. You're known as a very wealthy guy. Have you? How, how does it impact your lifestyle? So India is slightly different. America is truly capitalistic in nature. You guys have totally adopted the capital uh, capitalistic way of you know functioning as an economy. India is to a certain extent pseudo socialist. Uh, While wealth creation is appreciated, while uh, companies are incentivized to grow, uh, wealth disparity is a big problem here. The top 100 or the top 1,000 people in the country have way more resources relative to the rest of the country than they should, more so than America even. I think it's a problem in America too, considering, you know, there are people there who have $150 billion of network today. I don't think any individual needs to have that much money or should have that much money. Uh, But India is this weird mix of pseudo-socialist, capitalistic uh, uh, notions 
uh, wherein you would you would be surprised, but a lot of the very wealthy in India, especially in the south where I live in Bangalore, lead a very frugal lifestyle, and uh, they're really big in philanthropy. Uh, uh, we have the richest person in my city is a guy called Azim Premji. He started a software company called Wipro. uh was worth maybe 20 25 billion dollars and he has already given away 70% of his net worth to, to charity and uh, continues to give away more with time wow that's really impressive and and does some of that come from um historical legacy or some kind of um spirituality inherent in the people or some kind of a a generous nature where does that come from in the uh, among the wealthy would be tough to point to a single uh, source where something like this is inspired from but i think this is happening across the world uh, as the newer i think predicated inherited wealth typically things of wealth in a certain manner if i inherited uh, what my great grandfather left to my grandfather then to my father and then to me uh, i become more a patron of that wealth and uh, the legacy becomes bigger than me as a person but india as a country has opened up quite recently so the wealthy of today have not inherited this wealth but in many cases especially the startup ecosystem the technology players these are first generation rich i think it is much easier for somebody who has earned that money in their own lifetime to give it away than it is for people who have had you know five generations behind them who have accumulated that wealth i'm thinking of the biblical instruction to whom much is given much is required if you look at what occurred during covid we know that some of the wealthiest people across the globe the billionaires became even wealthier and a lot of that can be explained by the fact they head up high tech companies or they have shares in companies that have done well their own personal wealth is tied up in it the increase in their wealth was phenomenal whereas those at the bottom and even the middle class have suffered losses of income yeah even here the same story continues uh the number of people unemployed has gone up drastically Uh, just in between march and april i think the number has gone up from 6% to 8% uh what i think would not be too far fetched is to assume that as a repercussion of increased unemployment in different pockets of the world uh it will have far reaching implications you know crime rates will go up uh socio economic uh, numbers will fall uh it it will create a lot of issues i think the damage of this one year in the pandemic uh even though the pandemic might end and things might open up but i think the the people who have been so affected uh in this 12 month period people who have lost the only earning member of the family people who have lost a job they had held for 20 years uh these guys are going to think differently and uh, i think uh, general behavior patterns will change tremendously uh, far beyond the pandemic you spoke about social issues earlier also um you're clearly a free enterprise businessman you're running a very successful brokerage and asset management but can you tell us maybe a little bit more about your political and social ideology 
where you f- fit on the left right spectrum well i do this test many times to figure out if i'm actually left or right i like a little <laughs> bit of both uh, it's very hard to point to one but the last time i did it i think i am uh, i'm pro inheritance tax something which we do not have in india uh, i think uh, inherited predicated wealth when one generation leaves on to another uh, it should be there should be an inheritance tax there and at a fairly high rate and a country like india definitely needs it uh, farmers in india are not taxed today it's a big loophole of tax evasion where many people pretend to be farmers you know they have large incomes disappropriate to the farming land parcels they might hold uh, i don't think that is fair i think farmers who make more than say $50000 a year they should be taxed like other people in the country uh, so a, a lot of the things that i think in terms of taxation might lean me a bit left but Uh, there are other things and i feel like the government's meddling in corporate affairs is not necessarily a good thing i like the laissez faire kind of governance wherein uh, you let things be and you kind of like reduce the red tape and reduce regulation and reduce uh, reduce uh, middlemen in the form of bureaucrats in government i think that in turn will aid the industry but to summarize i would say i'm probably slightly left left leaning what was it like growing up what's your background you didn't grow up a wealthy individual uh no i did not so growing up uh, my dad uh was a bank manager uh, a government bank manager a very middle class upbringing uh quite nomadic he got transferred once every 3 years so we stayed in a city for 3 years shifted lived in another town for 3 Uh, did that till i finally found my way to bangalore not very good at academic never a good student uh, i started playing chess while i was fairly early uh, when i was 4 or 5 i had begun playing chess uh, started tiny businesses at the age of 14 15 i used to sell uh, used cell phones which is a thing actually in india so a combination of chess the cell phone business and a general uh, generally not being too interested in formal academics got me to drop out of uh, the formal education system very early when i was about 15 so i did not even truly complete uh, high school in the traditional sense uh, never went back to school never went to college uh, started working at a call center at the age of 17 started trading the equity market at the age of 17 trading evolved into managing money for friends and family which in turn in evolved into uh, becoming a broker and then over the years over the last 16 17 years i've been trading the markets every day for about 17 years now i'm 34 today uh, so we did everything which was you know laterally growing in our industry we became a lender what we call in india an mbfc uh, the broking firm did very well which has been by far our biggest success uh, we run the largest stock broking firm in india and have about uh, in between 15 to 18% market share in india so uh, about one out of six transactions which happen in india on equity markets happen on our platforms uh, that kind of turned fortunes around significantly the one great thing we did john along the way is we never took on external investors so we don't have 
uh, we've never diluted equity. We've never had an external P or venture capital fund, or we've never taken any debt. And we've acquired clients organically. So we never put out an ad, never did any marketing, no sales calls, none of that. Our, our key uh, mechanism to attract a business from the very beginning was to build a better product and people will talk about it and then come to you. Uh, that seems to have worked very well for us over the last 12, 13 years. It's remarkable. You started so young. And where did you get all this knowledge about the complicated infrastructure of brokerage and technology? It's even more complicated today than it was a generation ago. We learned along the way. I have a partner, uh, me and my brother are co-founders, and we started it together. I think uh, we learned along the way. And along the way, we found the right people at the right time, the right talent. And it has been a big team effort. And uh, we're a large team now. We're about 1,500 people here in Bangalore. But the first few people who joined us at the very beginning, uh, they were friends who joined us, but now they've become family. And the, the initial team is still with us and they're leaders in the business today. So I think that has worked for us very well. Can you give us any sense of the assets under management on your asset management unit and maybe the flow of funds that goes through your brokerage? Anything you can share? Yeah. So the asset management company is fairly new, but the broking business uh, does maybe 10 to $15 billion of uh, turnover a day, maybe about 10 million transactions a day. You're single? Yeah. So you're an eligible bachelor around the uh, social scene in Bangalore. Well, right now there is no social scene, John. I think uh, we're, all, we're all confined in the four walls that we call home. But uh, yeah, no social scene for now. Hopefully things open up soon, though. How do you relax in your off time or do you ever relax? You would seem yeah, to have a yeah. very busy life. Oh, no, plenty. So I try and go to the gym every evening. So I finish my day at about 7 or 8 p.m. I try to go to the gym then. Uh, get a workout in. Uh, I play football with my colleagues at work. Now, for Americans, we better explain this because I grew yeah, up yeah. in Europe. I grew up in Ireland. And yeah. you tell them that. And they, it's not American football, really soccer you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Soccer, soccer, yeah. So I play soccer. I play badminton. Uh, I play uh, pool. Uh, I watch Netflix. Uh, uh, I, must, I must have consumed every new show that had been made in the last 12 months, you know. I'm on Shit's <laughs> Creek right now. Right. Uh, binging on Shit's Creek as we speak. Very good. Well, that's that's <laughs> fantastic. I do hope we come out of this COVID uh, very soon everywhere so that we can get back to some kind of a new normal. What's to see the prospects uh, for India going forward the next couple of years? Uh, you bullish on it, optimistic. It sounds like, by your account, that things can be good. Yeah, I think we're a fairly resilient people. And uh, the raw ingredients for growth are there in the country. Now, if we do not utilize it and you know end up plateauing, it would be of our own doing. Uh, but in terms of the raw material required, in terms of uh, an enormous talent pool of engineers and doctors and scientists and innovative people and creative people. We have an immense amount of that. The work culture here is great. Access to resources, uh, you know, we're a country where, where the sun shines 365 days a year. Just from the energy perspective, if you were to look at it, 
and access to a vast domestic market as well. Uh, I think all the raw ingredients exist. Uh, it would be up to us uh, that you know we don't uh, kind of like wreck the great platform we have been given as a country, as a government, and make the most out of it. So you mentioned a very good work culture. People go to work, they embrace work, they work hard. Doesn't sound like if there's the same kind of entitlement mentality that we see in some parts of the world? Oh, not at all. I'll give you an example. For for $1,000 a month in India, in Bangalore, where I live, you will find a very savvy computer science engineer who's willing to work maybe 60 hours a week and work very diligently. And there are hundreds of thousands of people like that, which is not the case in most pockets of the world. Well, that's remarkable. And of course, we could have another longer discussion, but we just don't have enough time. Outsourcing was a big part of how India gained uh, some economic vitality. In other words, jobs outsourced. It's a bit controversial. Do you see that trend continuing or is there going to be a shift in that? Because Americans were getting very restive about that. Our jobs are being shifted to China and India. My personal opinion is the dollar, the strength of the dollar is artificially inflated. Mm. Uh, considering the amount of money that America has printed in the last two decades, uh, notwithstanding the craziness in the last 12 or 24 months, uh, they should have been a serious attempt on, you know, repricing of the dollar. That hasn't happened. As long as the dollar continues to remain as strong as it is today, outsourcing will happen one way or another because there will be countries uh, in other pockets of the world, which will be able to produce uh, and manufacture at a cost significantly lesser than America can because their currency is artificially inflated. So their labor will also be inflated. Uh, I think when the dollar, A, the dollar is not backed by anything. So, you know, it can go anywhere, right? The dollar to the rupee sits at 73 today. Uh, there is no reason why it should not be at 50 to a rupee or uh, 50 rupees to a dollar or 100 rupees to a dollar. When that market truly frees up, I think emerging market currencies will appreciate, especially China and India. And when that happens, I think outsourcing will see a natural death uh, and jobs will come back to America. I don't think you can forcefully bring jobs back to America. If if John can uh, get product A from Nikhil here in India at a dollar but has to pay three dollars to buy the same thing in america john would probably prefer nikhil uh, that market dynamic can't be forcefully changed so i think they have to let the currency trade freely and so do the emerging economies of china and india and when that parity is reached in one way or another i think uh, this outflow of jobs from america will reduce naturally Fascinating. Very interesting. Finally, when do you think the new normal will come for your Bangalore and India? And when will you be able to sort of socialize at night around parts of your city? Well, I think the socializing will happen in spurts and in pockets. Uh, I'm guessing things will open up now in a month or a month and a half. Uh, When they do, because we do not have ample vaccination uh, ample vaccination to vaccinate a large pop- large portion of our population today, there will be a third wave and we will close down again. But mm-hmm. the first opening of the lockdown will probably happen in a month or so. 
A lot of people, including your host, admires the charitable work you're doing. We need that from the business community and from ordinary people. We all have to step up. So thank you for doing that. It's a very humanitarian thing. Nikhil, thank you for being my guest. Thank you so much, John. Lovely chatting with you. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.